in Matthew 8, uh, what we're going to see is that Matthew, in essence, continues where he left off in chapter 4. It's just kind of a chronologically kind of a, a, a stepping off place after chapter 4 was the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount and a stepping back in to the, the flow of just the historical narrative uh, picks right back up here in chapter 8 with that uh, great sermon of Christ being, if you will, sandwiched between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 8. And accordingly, we find the same pattern of activity um, there that we saw from Jesus following uh, chapter 4. As we get to the end of chapter 4, we see that same pattern of activity as Jesus picks, him, picks up uh, his ministry there in chapter 8. Notice real fast here, ending chapter 4 prior to going into the Sermon on the Mount. It says, And Jesus, here in verse 23 of chapter 4, was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So it seemed that Jesus was accustomed to, as we see here, teaching in Jewish synagogues, uh, preaching to large crowds, as we saw here uh, on the hillside, the Sermon on the Mount, and then after preaching uh, the gospel, as we see here at the end of chapter, uh, verse 23 of chapter 4, it says that he healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And so the Sermon on the Mount, in keeping with this kind of ministry pattern, seems to follow in like suit. And we see this immediately following. Notice at the very end here of ch in chapter 7, verse 28, going into chapter 8, verse 1, notice it says, Now it happened that when Jesus had finished these words, so he's finished his preaching on that sermon on the mount, it says, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And then we get to chapter 8, verse 1. And notice it says there, it says, uh, Now when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Now, it might be the thought that the same large crowds that were following him continued following him. That would be a very obvious observation that we could make from the text. And then immediately, what we see beginning as he's coming down from the mountain following that great sermon is Jesus healing every kind of disease and sickness among the people, just like we saw was his norm after uh, teaching in synagogues, preaching, uh, sermon on the mount type, preaching, publicly, it says, and healing every kind of disease. So when we get to chapter 8, verse 2, and behold, a leper came to him and was bowing down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And to a great extent, these kinds of encounters that we see beginning here following this preaching is the kind of encounters that we're going to see that will make up chapters 8 and chapter 9 of Matthew's gospel. And it's believed by, by many, if, if not most, uh, scholars that it was Jesus' healing uh, ministry, healing of many who were infirmed and lame of all kinds of sickness and disease that in essence drew the very large crowds that were following him and that it was probably not so much his preaching ministry. That even though they publicly said, as he taught them as one having authority, not as their scribes, it's no small wonder that this would have been the case. Uh, Jesus' healing ministry brought immediate remedy to whatever ailed a person. And for people who seldom had the means to alleviate even the smallest of physical sickness, uh, much less birth deformities, uh, brought obvious widespread attention to the ministry of Christ. And so people came from great distance to have a chance of being healed by this miracle-working man. And never in, before in the history of the world had there been a man quite like this that had the ability to heal sickness, as did this man Jesus. And it was Jesus himself who said on more than one occasion that the miraculous works that he was performing should have been enough evidence for those looking on to believe that he and his gospel message was that of the long-awaited Messiah as predicted by God himself. So the Apostle John uh, recorded such words reflecting this in Jesus. If they're over in John chapter 10, I don't have this one on the screen, but in John 10, 
37 and 38, Jesus said, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, in other words, if I do the works of my Father, though you do not believe me, i.e. my preaching, he says, believe the works so that you may know and continue knowing that the Father is in me and I in the Father. From Jesus' perspective, his miraculous works were a means by which one could and should be able to know that he's doing works that only God the Father could do. He's suspending the natural order of the natural realm and doing miraculous things that only such a God could actually perform. And so now, if you will, some 2,000 years later, it's our turn. It's our turn to take a look at the reality of Jesus' healing ministry and to be challenged as they were to make a decision about this man, Jesus, who came doing the works of God. Now, did they have an advantage? Well, perhaps in so much that they saw with their own eyes and were eyewitnesses to many of the healings that took place. But nonetheless, we are the recipients of the eyewitness accounts of these said occasions. And indeed, as, it, as mentioned in the book of Acts, his apostles, these men, turned the world upside down. As a matter of fact, our calendar, our timing from uh, B.C., uh, A.D. to B.C. is marked off the birth of this man, Jesus, who's the Christ. It's um, no small thing. Indeed, so if we say, well, we did, we're not there to see with, with our eyes, well, let me encourage you to see this morning with eyes of faith. And might it be that which sharpens our resolve as his children to continue following hard after him in our own lives until we see him someday face to face. Amen? And as we will in each of, see here in, in chapter 8 in particular, the first three miracles that we're going to be looking at, we're going to see that Jesus healed a Jewish man with leprosy, a paralyzed Gentile soldier, and Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. And in each of these three miracles, we can learn certain things about God and of his care for the plight of human race. And as the fact that God showed compassion uh, towards those who suffered in life is made very obvious. We're going to see also that God's no respecter of persons, healing freely regardless of class or creed or gender. As a matter of fact, in each of these first three miracles, we are never once told that any of those who were actually healed, now think about this, we're never told specifically or directly that any of those who were actually healed ever became one of Jesus' disciples, one of his followers. For all we know, Jesus may have performed countless healings on people who actually never believed in him, in him as God's anointed Messiah. Which lets us know that Jesus' healing ministry, though it was greatly appreciated by those being healed, and or fed from time to time, the primary purpose of Jesus' healing ministry was intended to be a sign that pointed to something even greater. Of a sign that pointed back to himself, and in particular a sign that pointed back to his teaching and preaching ministry as he preached regarding the gospel of the kingdom of God, as he preached regarding the ultimate healing that would save a soul forever. I mean, if you think about it, if all Jesus was going to do, in essence, was to use miracles to save, I mean, to, to, to heal people and to remedy them of earthly difficulties or pains, but, and, and that was it, in essence, they're eventually going to die again someday, right? And if their soul hasn't received the ultimate healing that comes from Christ, the Lord, then in essence, uh, it's a very temporary healing indeed. And so it seems that the purpose, and as we're going to see Matthew pointing this out very specifically, that the, por the purpose of Jesus' miracles, more of the meta-narrative of what's happening within the context of miracles, is to point back as proof, as a sign, that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah, and thus you need to listen to him so that you know of your great need of repentance, of sin before God, and you can receive the ultimate healing. That no matter what comes your way in this life, whether it's a sickness or a deformity or whatever it may be, 
And that may not get healed in this life. The Apostle Paul himself asked three times that the Lord would perform a healing and miraculous healing in his body. We don't know exactly to what extent that was. And the Lord told Paul, no, my grace is sufficient for you. God's aim and Jesus' aim through doing the miraculous was not something that he just scattered randomly. It seems that they were very intentional and very purposed. Every time we see Jesus in a teaching or preaching context, it seems what followed was that of miraculous signs and wonders, and that for the purpose of pointing to him as being the long-awaited Messiah. A little bit more on that as we get to the end of this section. Notice, now look at chapter 8, verse 1 through 4 with me. It says, Now when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Verse 2, And behold, a leper came to him and was bowing down before him and said, Lord, if you're willing you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So where Matthew had previously been somewhat very general with regard to the miraculous healing ministry of Jesus as we saw finishing up in chapter 4 there, he now gets very specific. He does a deep dive and he's going to give us three in particular this morning, which it seems, according contextually, that these three miracles, the first three miracles that we see in chapter 8 are that which concludes a long day of ministry for Jesus, having been preaching there on the sermon on on that mount. And and now it seems that uh, these miracles that Jesus is about to perform, I mean, think about it. Matthew perhaps could have picked what? Any number of miracles probably to have inserted in this day of the life of Jesus, in the, the day of the life of ministry in Jesus. But he picks specific miracles, it seems, again, not just randomly, but very purposefully indeed. So that one might know that his preaching of the gospel of the kingdom was what they most desperately needed for their life. Let's start first with this leper. Okay, so it says here in chapter 8, verse 1, large crowds followed him, verse 2, and behold, a leper came to him. Okay, now let's start here with the leper. Listen to this description of leprosy from an L.S. Huizinga who has a medical background in writing on the con in the context of what leprosy would look like in this, in this day and age. He says, the, the disease which we today call leprosy generally begins with pain in certain areas of the body. Now, I'm reading this to you, and it's a, it's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I'm reading this to you because this is the first miracle that Matthew decides to put forward as a sign evidence that the preaching that Jesus has just finished coming off the mountain would be a a validation that if if this can take place, then what he was just saying back here in his preaching, that must be true as well. And he selects a very graphic, uh, miraculous uh, healing to start with, that of leprosy. It generally begins with pain in certain areas of the body. Numbness follows. Soon the skin is such is in such spots loses its original color the it gets to be thick glossy and scaly as the sickness progresses the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply the skin especially around the eyes and ears begin to bunch with deep furrows between the swellings so that the face of the afflicted individual begins to resemble that of a lion fingers drop out by this time, one can see the person in the, in the pitiable condition is a leper. By a touch of the finger, one can also feel it. One can even smell it, for the leper emits a very unpleasant odor. Moreover, in view of the fact that the disease-producing uh, agent frequently also attacks the larynx, the leopard's voice acquires a grating quality. His throat becomes hoarse, and you can now not only see, feel, and smell the leper, but you can hear his rasping voice. And if you stay with him for some time, you can even imagine a particular taste in your mouth 
probably due to the odor. So in, in a general sense, I want you to, tr as best you can, try to imagine what that condition of leprosy would look like. And here in verse 2 it says, And behold, a leper came to him and was bowing down before him. Now, when you think of this condition, it's, it becomes pretty obvious that leprosy was one of the most feared diseases in the ancient world. Even today it can't totally be cured, though it can be perhaps kept in check with proper medication. And it seems very obvious that this would be why God gave such strict and very specific regulations to Moses regarding leprosy for the protection of his people. So when the text says that this leper came to Jesus, you can almost be assured of the fact that the miracle about to happen would be seen by a very large number of people as they were clearing out and moving themselves away from the leper who has made his way into the presence of Christ. And so it would seem, and you can almost imagine this scene, that here's a large crowd to some degree kind of on the outskirts now as this leper has moved in, and there in the middle stands Jesus, toe-to-toe, -to -toe, well not toe-to-toe -to -toe because the leper's bowing down before him, but Jesus and this leper right there together having, having preached his great sermon on the mount. And it seems very obvious, according to what the leper says, <clears throat> that um, he wasn't around when Jesus was preaching regarding the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Um, had that happened, then those that were up on the mount would have dispersed, and we would have probably heard that story instead would disperse that crowd from Jesus' teaching. But again, it seems without question, according to what the leper said, that he had heard of Jesus, and he had heard of Jesus' ability to heal. And so this leper knew without question that Jesus, who had a healing ministry, could heal him if Jesus was so inclined to heal him. He says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. So rather than asking clarifying questions about his need of repentance, it seems that this leopard was thinking nothing other than his great need as perceived by him, which would be a physical healing instead. Again, this man didn't come to Jesus lacking any proper reverence. The text says that he came and he was bowing down before him. We also see that this man didn't come to Jesus demanding or assuming that Jesus owed him anything. He simply made his request. He said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Which, if you think about it, to a certain degree, demonstrates this man's faith in Christ's ability to exercise supernatural authority over that which is broken, that which is defiled, that which is unclean. In some ways, it demonstrates a faith that this man has in Jesus. Though a faith lacking, though a faith that perhaps doesn't demonstrate a saving faith, he definitely had some level of faith in Jesus' capacity to take care of his needs. Which, it seems, was one of the very purposes for which Jesus performed such mighty miracles. And so every person, having just heard Jesus' preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, immediately finds themselves watching that interaction. And I think we could obviously indicate that that would be a very st staggering encounter, to say the least, a man such as this leper. And if we're to think for even just a brief moment that this miracle that's about to happen, that indeed will forever change this leprous man's life and that for the good, if we're to think that that was intended for the sole purpose of changing this leprous man's life exclusively, then we, like those in attendance that day, will be missing the greater miracle that Jesus described when delineating on what redeemed hearts actually looked like when preaching on the Beatitudes, on the sermon that they just finished listening to coming down from said mountain. Because if this leprous man who gets healed again doesn't repent and get his heart renewed, the healing of the heart, which is what 
repentance brings and thus the following beatitudes and the life that looks like what Jesus articulates there, then again, uh, without the ultimate healing, this man will simply die and face the very wrath of God. So when reaching out and touching this leprous man, as Jesus is about to do, it seems that Jesus is wanting to demonstrate something as a sign, allowing the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to flow through his life, demonstrating the power and mercy of God in support of a larger mission that Jesus came to accomplish, that of seeking and saving his lost sheep. As we read in John chapter 10, even this morning, so that that large crowd that's looking on, having just heard of a great need of theirs for repentance because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and that the new lawgiver of the new covenant, that this Jesus, who he's claiming to be, is now here preaching and articulating this gospel of the kingdom, this very graphic, miraculous uh, sign that's about to take place with this leprous man, what seemed to be that which Jesus was using for the purpose of communicating his meta-narrative for life of doing the will of the Father and seeking and saving that which is lost. Without question, it's going to bring great good to the man who's getting healed, without question. So we see in verse 3, it seems without even a hinge of hesitation at all, uh, that Jesus reaches out, as we see in verse 3. And he says he's willing. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing be cleansed. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Now, think about this. According to Leviticus 5, it's forbidden to touch a leper. Because he was unclean and in touching a leper, it would make the man who touched the leper also ceremonially unclean and physically contaminated and perhaps would also be one who would contract leprosy, and so he would have been sent outside the camp for a duration of days before checking back with the priest to make certain that he did not have such a case of leprosy and then contaminate other people within the community. But on this occasion, this leprous man, it says, was instantaneously and completely healed. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Now, did you still have in your mind somewhat the vision of what leprosy when it consumes a person's body looks like? I'm willing, be cleansed, and immediately, immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. I mean, there wouldn't have been a person there having witnessed this, having seen the complete and immediate restoration of this once deformed, shriveled, scaly, sore-covered body suddenly stand upright with perfect arms, legs, and face, hair restored, voice restored, eyes bright and fixed on Jesus. Who could have missed that? Now, oftentimes, and I'm, this is just a little bit aside, because this isn't what is dealing with in Jesus' ministry here at all. But I want you to notice the, uh, the immediacy of the healing. You know, oftentimes today when we hear people talk about healing, there's always some lengthy process. They spent time going to the doctors. They've been on medication. They had the surgery. They were infirmed for a month maybe or a week or three weeks or three months, whatever it may be. And then we get to the end of it all and we say, oh, we've been praying for your healing and praise God for your healing. And are we legitimately serious when we thank God for restoring such a one back to health? Well, of course we are. But I want us to take note of the difference of nature of the kinds of things that we speak about today as healing and the kinds of healing that took place at the hands of Jesus. Did you, you got the vision of what that leprous man's body probably looked like? And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Instantaneously, from grotesqueness to a normal, beautiful body again. Now, I wasn't there to see it. I'm only reading the words that took place, but it would seem to me that those who would have been there could not have missed 
this amazing miracle. And again, what was the purpose for the large crowds following him? Well, because these, this was the kind of thing that Jesus was doing everywhere he went. When he went throughout Galilee, throughout the Decapolis, after teaching in synagogues and preaching on hillsides, he healed the sick in multitudes of them. And the more he did that, the more the news spread and the more people came to follow this man. Again, probably not so much for his teaching, but for his miraculous powers or for his feeding capacities, right? And it would also seem that none could have missed Jesus' parting words to this man, having followed such a miraculous event. We see here in verse 4, it says, And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one. Now, contrary to Jesus, when we have even the slightest so-called healing today, it becomes, it becomes headline news within particular churches. And they say, oh, this happened, this happened. Jesus is saying, see that you tell no one. And I think everybody in the, in the audience listening would have heard that Jesus, this man just went from being a leprous man to being healed in their sight. And he says, he says see that you tell no one. Don't go about making much of this miraculous thing in your own life, the power that flowed from me of God into your life. There's something else I need you to do. He says, I want you to go and I want you to show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And it seems that the principle here is very simple. Do what is required of you by law and allow the priest, the religious leaders, to be the ones declaring that a complete cleansing of your incurable leprosy has taken place. And once the priests give you entrance back into normal society, the story of your cleansing, of your healing, and of who it was that made you well will be the talk of the town. They will do their, the talking for you. And he says, and it will be a testimony to them, to the very people that originally he was not to say anything to and to the religious leaders, that a prophet likened unto Moses has truly arisen among the nation of Israel. Just like Moses and the prophets said would happen. A former leper could hardly be expected to reappear as a healthy member of society without people needing to know what happened. The process of showing himself to the priest and the ensuing sacrifices would take a long time. As a matter of fact, it says in the book of Leviticus it would take eight days. And the offerings that would have had to have been made would have had to have been made in the temple, thus requiring a, a trip for this man back to Jerusalem for said offerings to take place in the temple over the course of those eight days, all before this man could come back and rejoin his Galilean society. I mean, to a certain degree, this might be what you call the, the, the art of evangelism. I don't know. See that you tell no one, but instead do this, and in doing this, uh, we just got finished singing the, the news of his great name and the power of his great name would be no... Oh, and it says that Jesus often went and he taught in the synagogues. And if you don't believe for a second that going back, this man going to the priest, and they said to him, uh, and how did this happen? Well, um, you know that Jesus of Nazareth guy? Yeah, he, um, he touched me, and I was immediately cleansed. And, and knowing these religious bean counters, probably he touched you? Rather than marveling over the fact that here this man stands before them completely cleansed, they, they perhaps might have tried to make something out of the fact that he actually touched the man because they're religious zealots and they were in essence after Jesus and trying to find any way to mess up his ministry. The art of evangelism. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. So not only was a leprous man healed, but Jesus effectively increased public awareness not only of his power to heal, but also to his teaching and preaching ministry regarding the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Again, we must never forget and always remember that Jesus' greatest purpose was to cleanse people's sins.
not their temporal sicknesses. Which is why his physical healings became illustrations of the spiritual cleansing offered through his gospel. This healing of leprosy was especially powerful in that regard because like leprosy, sin is physically destructive, it's incurable, ugly, and pervasive unless God takes decisive action. And it makes a person an outcast among other people as well as with God and that permanently unless God takes action. But just as Jesus can cleanse leprosy, he can also cleanse a person of their sins. Amen? And just as a physical cleansing of leprosy restored this man back to fellowship with people and his family and, and hopefully eventually with God, so too does Jesus' spiritual cleansing of sin restore man's fellowship with other people and most importantly with his God. And again, this is why sharing the gospel the way Jesus shared the gospel is utterly important. For sinners like this leprous man must come to Jesus confessing and bringing their sin to Jesus for cleansing. Confessing their need and, and reverently seeking his restoration. As this man came to Jesus with no pride, bowing down before him, uh, this, this man showed up with no self-will, no sense of self-rights, no claims of Jesus' cleansing apart from Christ's good pleasure and desire. You might say he came to the table empty-handed, bringing no works of his own. And he came and he bowed down before Jesus and he said he knew that Jesus had something that he needed desperately and he asked Jesus if he was willing to give it. And then Jesus, after healing this leopard, pointed him back to the word of God. Go and do what it says for you to do in accordance with the law of Moses. And so just like this with the healing of sin, the ultimate healing, Jesus then points us back to the word of God and calls us to obey all that he has commanded us as a testimony to an onlooking world, just like he told this leper to do. And just like he did with this leprous man, whom he healed physically, living out a lifestyle of obedience is going to be the only testimony, proper testimony, to what Jesus has done so miraculously in our leprous, sinful past. Now, if that healing wasn't sufficient to be a very staggering testimony of the power of God through this man, Jesus, and I have to be honest, if I'm standing there with hooves on the ground that day, somewhat scattered to the outer skirts and watching this leprous man show up, making certain I'm, I'm, I'm upwind, not downwind of him, out of fear that I don't want to contract this leprous disease myself, and I observe this and witness this and watch this, I have to confess that to a certain degree, I'm thinking if that man can do that to this leper, the things that he said in the sermon up there on the mount, on the hillside, must be true as well. How could it not be? How could it not be? You see, Jesus uses the miraculous to point us back to the greater healing, which is the healing of our souls. Now, in the second miracle in chapter 8, what time is it? Oh, it's 11.15. You got another hour? Just kidding. But um, I'm going to shorten these next ones up just a little bit. Some of y'all just kind of scowled at me. Wait a second. Y'all are like, wait a second. No. Um, I think I can wrap this up and, well, I don't know. I'm not going to go there. But notice this second miracle in chapter 8. Um, it's believed, again, that this trip here that we're going to see to Capernaum occurred again on the same day, that these three miraculous things that happened in the first three miracles in chapter 8 are all kind of wrapping up that great day of ministry that Jesus had that began with the Sermon on the Mount. Notice verse 5. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him. Here in verse 5, Jesus is being approached by a centurion. Now, again, from Luke's account of this encounter, it seems that this centurion perhaps came to Jesus through some Jewish intermediaries, that he sent some friends out to him feeling somewhat unworthy of Jesus approaching him personally, or perhaps it was due to the fact that the centurion was an officer in the Roman occupation army and would have been greatly despised by 
most Jews, if not hated by them, and knowing that Jesus was a Jew and that a lot of the people, his disciples in particular, that were following him in that crowd perhaps would not have been um, very pleasant towards him. However, we don't know these things exactly, but from Luke's account, it seems like this centurion, who would have been a Gentile, was at least a God-fearing Gentile, who from his own resources, it says, um, built a synagogue for the Jewish people there in Capernaum. And from verse 6, we learn that this Gentile military man was also a compassionate man, which was seemingly contrary to uh, leaders, military leaders in this day. Notice it says in verse 6, and saying, Lord, this is what the centurion man is saying, Lord, my, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. So again, whatever the disease was, we're not told explicitly, but it's clearly a debilitating disease, and it's left this man paralyzed, and it says that he was fearfully tormented as a result of whatever disease this man has. And so Jesus quickly understands that he's being asked for help for a miraculous healing again because this is what people oftentimes came to him for. So in verse 7, Jesus said, he said to him, I will come and heal him. And as Jesus came near to his house, again, the centurion sent out a delegation of friends to meet Jesus, to request that he not come into his house, that he just say the word. Notice verses 8 and 9. He says, but the centurion said, Lord, I am not good enough for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another man, come, and he comes, and to, this, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Simply put, this centurion, having heard of Jesus' healing ministry, understood that Jesus held authority. He held authority over the natural realm of sickness and disease and was capable of speaking into that realm and bringing healing where it was impossible for anybody else to bring. And by being in this position of authority, he knew that all Jesus had to do was say the word, just give the command, and his servant could be healed of this disease. This centurion knew that Jesus didn't have to be bodily present in order to exercise the authority that he possessed. And in verse 10, Jesus then commends this man for his keen insight and faith. He says there in 10, Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say, to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. So of all the people who had previously seen Jesus' healing ministry, there had not been even one of his Jewish brethren who perceived what this Gentile man did. Jesus says, not one. And it bears pointing out that our context here doesn't seem to imply that this man's faith in Jesus was a saving faith. Now, it could have been. But it surely doesn't indicate this. And again, the centurion didn't ask Jesus to clarify anything on his teaching regarding repentance and of entrance into his eternal kingdom. That's not what this man was after. His interest, again, seemed to be clearly of a physical nature and to be that which was of the best interest of his servant whom he loved, who was lying at home greatly tormented in his infirmity. But nonetheless, as his statement clearly indicates... He did believe that Jesus possessed supernatural powers that allowed him to exercise authority over sickness and disease. And then Jesus, in a very interesting way that Matthew writes his account here, kind of immediately then places Jesus in the role of a prophet and has Jesus, it seems, prophesying of a great ingathering of other such Gentiles as this centurion Gentile who would be those who would have entrance into his eternal kingdom who obviously like this Gentile man would be believing in Jesus in such a way as to cause them to repent of sins. Notice, look at verse 11 and 12. And again, this is a very awkward, if you will, insertion here of Matthew with regard to the conversation that Jesus was having with this, with this Gentile centurion. So Jesus, in this role of a prophet, he says, and I say to you that many will come from east and west, future, many will come, and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom 
will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it's this statement of Jesus here that's led many to think that this centurion's faith in Jesus seems now to be projected as being more than just a simple faith in his having authority over sickness and disease. And is now being used by Jesus as being indicative of other such Gentiles who will have saving faith in Jesus and will be those privileged to recline at the table in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great patriarchs of the nation of Israel. And if that's not shocking enough to those disciples of his who would have been around hearing this and to the other Jewish people who had been following, Jesus, it seems, adds insult to injury here. Notice by saying that the sons of the kingdom, meaning the sons of Israel, those who were of Jewish heritage, of Jewish blood, those who received and carried the very oracles of God, it seems implied here by means of their lack of faith, they will be those who are cut off and will instead be cast out into the outer darkness. And he says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So paradoxically here, it, it seems that those who should have been saved and in inheriting the Messiah's kingdom won't be, while those who were supposed to perhaps not have been saved, these Gentiles, will be the many Jesus says that will be coming from the east and the west that will be inheriting Messiah's kingdom together with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's some short prophetic interlude that Matthew inserts into this healing of the centurion commander's slave. It's very unique. And in verse 13, Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Now, not surprising because this is what Jesus does as he has been doing everywhere he goes. He does for the centurion slave exactly what was desired. And here Jesus, with the authority of his spoken word, heals the servant, as it says, that very moment. No delayed healing, no more sitting around laying in bed for the next two weeks and recovering slowly. No, that very moment that the word was spoken. Jesus, again, demonstrating that he did have authority over sickness and disease because he's God and he's doing what only God can do. And seeing that Jesus' words are powerful to perform what he says, it might seem that Jesus' prophetic words of verse 11 and 12 and the saving of many Gentiles who will recline at the banquet table in the kingdom of heaven with the Jewish patriarchs, which is, as previously mentioned, a part of his meta-narrative of seeking and saving that which is lost and of healing of the Gentile centurion slave, are somehow intertwined one with another. And as we have seen here, what Jesus says does come to pass by the power of his word. And as I look around this morning and as you look at your neighbor next to you, what do we see here this morning? Some 2,000 years later, do we not see a lot of Gentile converts? And it would seem to me that we would be those coming from the west to the glory of God through the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Gentiles, someday we'll be sitting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in his kingdom, rejoicing over King Jesus forever and ever. And then, if that wasn't enough, again, a, a miraculous healing of sorts that wasn't just simply for the healing itself, but for bringing a focus back to what Jesus is really about, which is to seek and save that which is lost. He says, so after the high drama of the meeting of the leper and the remarkable faith of the centurion, this Gentile man whose servant got healed at a distance just by the speaking of the word of Jesus, it seems that Jesus' day ends with some less dramatic activity. Here in verses 14 and 15, it says, when Jesus came into Peter's house here in Capernaum, into Peter's home, he saw that his mother-in-law was lying sick in bed with a fever, and verse 15, he touched her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and began waiting on him. Now, when we see this exact same account in the other two synoptic gospels of Luke and Mark, it appears that Peter's mother-in-law had a very high fever, and 
as such was bedridden, probably maybe indicating that the fever was extremely severe and perhaps even life-threatening. It doesn't say those words specifically, but that seems to be the intent in the other two Gospels. But as Matthew simply states here in his Gospel, it says that Jesus touched her hand and the fever left her again immediately and completely as a result of Jesus' healing power. And it seems on this occasion, unlike the other two occasions, to a certain degree, that Jesus' healing of this woman was a powerful indication that Jesus was an equal opportunity healer, gender not excluded. And the healing of Peter's mother-in-law allowed her to rise up out from her sickbed for the very purpose of serving Jesus and those in the house. And I can't help but think of the impact that the healing of Peter's mother-in-law perhaps had in Peter's faith journey with Jesus. You remember the time that um, Jesus with his disciples said, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they're saying, well, some say that he's Elijah or Elisha and some of the other prophets. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who speaks up, and Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Correct, you're right, Peter. And it's not flesh and blood that revealed this to you, but this was revealed to you by my Father. And I can't help but think that the, the miraculous healing of the leper and the words that were spoken to the centurion at a distance and the, healing of, and the immediate healing of his slave and then seeing Jesus come into his home knowing that his mother-in-law was perhaps deathly ill with a fever and just at the touch of a hand she was able to rise up from her sickbed and immediately get back to serving and taking care of their needs. That these things were some of the very things that God used in Peter's life to reveal to Peter's heart that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because it seems that these were the very purposes for which Jesus' miracles were intended. And in capping the day off completely, we see this point in the next two verses as we wrap up this morning. It says, Now when evening came, they brought to him many. They just don't stop, do they? Listen, when you find a, when you find a miracle man like this, do people stop showing up at the porch? Now, Jesus would have to get in a boat and go out into the sea to get some distance oftentimes to be able to get some reprieve because when people actually have the power of healing like this, people don't stop showing up at your porch. They come round the clock and they come from great distances because you have something that only they have a provision and a remedy for. They don't call up politely and, and schedule, hey, on next Thursday, could I show up at 10.30 for my healing? They're crowding in on this man. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. Ministry for Jesus, it seems, just oftentimes didn't come to a conclusion. But notice, after all these were healed and many demon possessions were cast out, and the three miracles in particular that that Matthew showed us, notice, and healed, all, and, and healed all who were ill in order to purpose. All these miraculous things, casting out demon-possessed, healing all with just a word, the leprous man, bam, just instantaneously taken care and healed. In order to, purposes of miracles, fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet saying, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Matthew makes his point very vividly here in verse 17, doesn't he? See where it says, in order to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet saying, here Matthew clearly identifies the purpose of Jesus' miracles, ministry of miracles, was in order to fulfill the word of God. In order to fulfill that which was written about this guy right here. As Isaiah in Isaiah 53 and 4 prophesied about the suffering servant and the reigning servant. Who is this he that Isaiah is talking about? This he himself, 
these miracles were done in order to fulfill, in order to point back to the very he who has the capacity to do the very things that Jesus here is doing, taking away infirmities and carrying away diseases. And there in Isaiah chapter 53, the very next verse, it says of this same he, it says that he is the same one who was pierced through for our transgressions, and it's the same he who was crushed for our iniquities, and it's the same he that by his scourging, it says we are healed. And it's this same he who came preaching a message of the gospel of the kingdom of your greatest need, which is that of repentance from sin towards God. So that the miraculous miracle of healing that takes place in the heart, the giving of a new heart could take place. Because does God not know that the curse of sin is going to be in our bodies until Jesus comes again and we get new bodies? Well, of course he does. It doesn't matter how many times he heals a broken body, it's going to get older and die. You get healed from cancer once, you may get cancer a second time. The greater healing, the greater infirmities that he's taking away is that our sin-cursed hearts and the imputation of a new heart. And so all these miracles were in order to fulfill the word of God, in order to point us back to the he himself who does this work, the he who was crushed for our transgressions, the he who was scourged for our healing. And that was the work that was done at the cross of Calvary. And that's the work that was done for the healing of hearts, the healing that lasts for all eternity. The healing of conversion. The eternal healing that grants us entrance into the eternal kingdom of heaven forever and ever and ever and ever. Matthew points us back to the he of the word of God. The miracles are to point not to the, the miracle itself, but to the one who came from heaven and gives life eternal. That's what Matthew's done in these first, that first day following that great ministry of the Sermon on the Mount. You see this? It seems that this was the historical narrative that the Spirit of God led Matthew to write so that we could make a decision about who we believe Jesus to be.